0: Hello and welcome to UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips and my guest today is Jenny Stocken. Hello Jenny, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Hi, thanks for inviting me, it's great to be here.
0: So Jenny, um, we're going to be talking about wood ants today, but before we start getting stuck in with all that, could you say who you are?
1: So I am a research scientist at the James Hutton Institute, I'm based in Aberdeen. I, I My job is as a, an insect ecologist and I do uh, lots of research on, on different insects and the relationship with land use and drivers of change such as climate change.
0: Oh, excellent. I first come across you, Jenny, didn't I? You did a talk for Edinburgh Entomological Society on relocating wood ants' nests. So I think we'll talk a bit about that later. We always start with our latest wildlife sightings. Have you seen anything interesting wildlife-wise recently?
1: Um, We're a little bit behind um, up here. It's been a bit of a cold spring, but I was out in the forest this week, not surprisingly looking for wood ants. But in between the heavy showers, we managed to see a lot of tiger beetles, the common green tiger beetles, which are just fantastic, sort of iridescent, big eyes, um, flying about, really. And lots of Dumbledore beetles, you know, the door beetles. that plod about, just brilliant. So that was quite nice.
0: Yeah, I do like the tiger beetles. I finally managed to photograph some this year, because they are a nightmare to get close to, aren't they? Yeah. I I found the trick was to wait till a cloud went in because we're in the sun they're just <laughs> super fast you can't get to near. oh fabulous what have I seen this week I had a wonderful day yesterday at work I was teaching some kids some how to kick sampling and some other stuff in fresh water I say kids they're actually I think mostly what well, old teenagers and older actually so it's students students that's what I'm looking for <laughs> and we're sat there by this stream and we hear cuckoo cuckoo which is always good because you know cuckoo's declining and then heard another cuckoo and then we heard the bubbling of a female and for the next 20 minutes or so we had a female being chased around by a male cuckoo, which was really cool. <laughs> uh, and at one point the cuckoo went too close to a nest of something and got mobbed by some small birds. So it was, yeah, rather cool. And then a massive female sparrowhawk came in and landed in a tree quite far away, but, you know, I could tell it was a sparrowhawk. I thought it was a buzzard from the colour of it. She like that deep brown colour. And then we moved to another site. And I had heard these were in the stream, but someone did a kick sample and found a tiny lamprey larva, or was it an seat I think it was it called. I don't even know with lampreys. Um, I've yeah. seen a
1: few, yeah, yeah.
0: Yes, I've never seen one before, so I was <laughs> really chuffed. I thought it wasn't the full adult with a proper sucker and stuff. But for those who don't know, think cross a fish with a leech, and that's kind of what a lamprey is. This is basically this long eel-like fish oh well, say fish, not technically a fish. It's something it's a vertebrate and related to fish, but not a fish because it hasn't got a jaw. It's long. We'll we do an episode on lampreys at some point and I'll fully explain. <laughs> um I definitely will because they're brilliant. And for the first part of their life cycle they live in rivers under the sediment and the other species, not this brook lamprey fan, um, are actually uh, when they turn into adults or subadults, adults they've got a sucky mouth and they're like a leech on fish you quite often see sea lampreys attached to basking sharks when you see them on telly just after they they caught one i was i had a sieve in the stream because if you sieve the sediment you can catch mayfly nymphs and stuff that way that live in the sediment and as i just put the sieve down i could see something flicking in the current and i couldn't work out if it was a leaf or a twig Um so i just scooped it slightly with my sieve and there's a Ten centimeter long um, lamprey larva. So that was pretty cool. So I've finally seen a lamprey after all these years of trying. So I'd uh, rather could. Yeah, that's probably my highlights recently. I did have a look for the rare distinguished jumping spider uh, earlier this week, and I found something that might be one, but I think it's too small to tell which species it was. But hopefully, my next trip I'll find them. But that's pretty cool. Yeah, off the top of my head. I'm sure there's other things I've seen recently as well, but that's the two that come to mind at the moment. But I think we can get straight into the wood ants now, which um, as listeners to other episodes will probably know are one of my favourite creatures. So I was chuffed when I found out about Jenny and thought uh, <laughs> got to get her on the show at some point. So thanks so much for coming on, Jenny.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: So let's start off with the basic question, wood ants. What are they? How are they different to other ants, kind of thing?
1: Yeah, it's a good question and it's surprisingly difficult to answer, actually. Yeah. Um, and it depends who you ask, um, because a lot of people. We'll call all ants in the genus Formica wood ants um, or other names that they use for them are mound ants or thatching ants or field ants. But if we're talking sort of taxonomically and in a sort of more scientific way, then they are members of a species group, the Formica rufa species group, which consists of about 20 species worldwide. And I say about because there's probably new species out there that we've yet to describe and they're taxonomically quite unstable as well they they do hybridize a lot of the the different species so um so it's quite it's, it's quite complicated but generally they're sort of large red brown colored ants they're ecologically dominant over other ants in the places that they're found and they build these large Thatched mounds, and in the UK we have we have it's a little bit simpler in the UK. We have three species, and we have Formica aquilonia, which is the Scottish or something's called the Northern wood ant, and that's only found in Scotland, and it might still exist in Northern Ireland. We're not sure. Then we have the the southern or common wood ant, Formica rufa, which is found in England and Wales, and then we have a third species, Formica lugubris, which is the um, hairy, or um in other parts of Europe it's called the mountain ant, and it's found in Scotland, England, Wales, and Ireland as well. And we think we've lost a fourth species. There was a fourth species called uh, Formica pretensis, which is still found on the Channel Islands, but we think it's now been lost from the
0: mainland. That's a shame. Ah, see, that explains why I've seen the narrow-headed ant, uh, which some people might remember from the... Uh, well but the back from the week episode and the one with Xander um, has been described as a wood ant and in other places recently I've not seen it described as a wood ant so that makes sense
1: yeah it's, it's a, it, so the farm kick sector forms a sister group or a different clade to the wood ants mm. it's a different species group and it does share some of the same similar characteristics to wood ants it does build nest mounds but they tend to be smaller and they tend to like more open habitats so you'll find them on the edge of forests or in forest clearings or in younger forest where the, the canopy is not sort of closed over. Um, but ah. they, they do look like wood ants. Um, so yeah. you have to get quite close to be able to identify them.
0: Yeah, because uh, when I went to the Kangorns, the one time I've been to the Kangorns in summer, I did find what looks like smaller, small to me if someone's used to some wood ants, on the edge of the woodland on a path. And I still don't know which, if they were them or not. Yeah. Because um, yeah, you have to tell them uh, the different... And Species Apart, you have to look at the hairs on the head or something, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so we'll... For, for formica except for the narrow-headed ant it's got a well, I describe it as a heart-shaped head it's got a notch at the top of its head so it's quite an easy one to distinguish there's also another related species called formica sanguinea which is the slave maker or blood-dread ant and it has um, it looks like a wood ant as well but it tends not to build thatch mounds it tends to nest underground or in dead wood and it enslaves other ants so it raids the colonies of, of other ants and takes back the pupae to rear as slaves I and mean, it's got a sort of notched colipus so part of the mouth parts are notched and then the the wood ants themselves yes you need to look at at the hairs so whether they've got hairy eyes or not whether they've got a fringe around the head whether that extends down beyond the eyes or not you can also look at the hairs along the if you look at the ant side sideways you can look at the the pattern of hairs along along its thorax and also the petiole, the segment between the thorax and the abdomen the number of hairs on that and the pattern of hairs is also distinctive so it is, it is quite tricky and it varies so much so for example the haidi wudan can lose its hairs so you often have to look at multiple <laughs> individuals to be sure you've got the right species and and yes they may hybridize as well so that might add something um into the mix
0: Ah, oh. <laughs> that, that fills you with confidence. <laughs> Identify them. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, that, that's a good thing about ants, I suppose. If you need multiple specimens, especially of wood ants, that shouldn't be too much of a problem, should it? Yes, exactly. So I think we'll come on to the size of colonies and stuff, but we've got to talk about the their formic acid eruptions, shall we say? <laughs> Yeah.
1: It's definitely something you notice is it when you get close to and you can smell the formic acid when you get close to, to a nest. So so they produce this in a the, sort of, their poison or venom gland and they can when they squirt it, they can squirt it for, you know, a good distance actually. So they use it as a defense and also an alarm chemical. So when one wood ant starts spraying acid, lots of them will join in and that's when you get that that smell and that that's um squirting. But a lot of species actually take advantage of it. So a lot of birds will we'll take a formic acid bath. So they'll sit on the nest and disturb the ants so the ants cover them in formic acid. And that helps to get rid of any sort of parasites and things that are they're clinging onto the bird's feathers. And the other, the other brilliant thing is, so the wood ants will take resin from trees and they'll take that back into their nest because it's got antimicrobial properties. But then when they squirt formic acid onto that resin, it turns it into sort of super soap. So it, it you know, it enhances its microbial, antimicrobial properties and, and helps to keep the nest really clean and, and free of bacteria and fungi.
0: Oh lovely. Yeah, I have read somewhere about them spraying their eggs or pupa or something with, with the acid, do not they to or that might be what you're saying there, I guess. Oh yeah, yeah it, helps, <laughs> it
1: helps keep them clean, yep. Yeah.
0: <laughs> lovely things. I've, I've got no sense of smell but um i've definitely uh, i have a habit of sort of just lying next to a nest and occasionally my elbows on the edge of it and uh, the, the, the bites frankly don't well, obviously don't hurt me i wouldn't stand there very long but um i have probably stuck the lens a bit close a few times and um after a minute or two i have to stand up because my throat's starting to go raw from breathing <laughs> formic acid but oh it's amazing things i mean because this is a the thing I usually explain to people generally is this whole biting ants things. So wood ants can bite. The um, red ants they actually sting, don't they? Cause yes, they're...
1: yes. So, so if wood ants have lost their sting, and yeah. that partly that's because they've got this this ability to produce the formic acid. So that's the trade off there. Yeah. Um, I mean I don't know how true this is But I have heard that um, In certain parts of the world Children stick lollipops into the top of wood ant nests Until the ants cover it in formic acid And then they lick the acid off but I've never been able to prove whether that's true or not. So I, I guess if anybody knows, it would be really interesting to hear if that's true.
0: Oh, the one I, I saw and have used is, um, obviously, don't pick a bluebell. But I remember watching Nick Baker on the television found a picked blue, you know, one that snapped at the the base. If you wave a bluebell over the nest, it turns pink, which is rather uh, cool. my, my favorite That trick. might work, uh, yeah. And what was funny is I put that on Twitter or something and it was a BBC programme Nick Baker did this on and I think someone from Springwatch from the BBC <laughs> was asking me, how does this work? cuz was like, um, <laughs> it was on your programme. <laughs> it's obviously not linked up thinking there, but um, that was always fun. But yes, obviously you don't pick to move those people, but um, especially this time of year when they're starting to go over, there should be a few that are falling over and stuff. And uh, yeah, that always works well with the kids when uh, I'm taking a group round. But uh, oh, they're fantastic things. Um, so... Let's talk about the sort of keystone species, aren't they, in the woodlands they occur in? You've touched on that already, but uh, they're they're quite quite, um, influential, I suppose, the wood would be the word, isn't it?
1: yeah they can be because because they can be so abundant and so numerous and then there's if there's multiple nests they can really have quite a big effect on their surroundings and part of that is is through their diet um, and what they feed on so they have two main sources of of food so the workers feed mainly on a carbohydrate source of food which is honeydew taken from from aphids or other insects that produce honeydew and then they also scavenge or hunt for insects and other invertebrates as a subprotein source and that is fed to the the queen and to the the young brood and so a nest can take hundreds of kilograms worth of honeydew a year and a millions and millions and very large nest will take about 10 million invertebrates from the surrounding every year in order to feed itself so they can have a huge impact and as they're foraging for the honeydew they'll forage into the canopy of trees and they'll herd the aphids around in in order to collect the, the honeydew and so they'll have these trails um, that will go up the trees into the... So anything on those trails, anything that gets in the way is basically um, affected. And yeah, so they can have a huge impact. And even just because of their nests as well, they're changing the, the chemical environment. Um, they're accumulating all this, all this material. Um, they can affect nutrient cycling because of that. So they can affect the balance of bacteria and fungi in the soil. So they, they have wide-ranging effects
0: yeah i mean i remember reading a few years ago about the green island effect isn't it where they is it because they take out all the oh I hate to use the word pest, that's not the word I'm for, the herbivorous insects, that's the word I'm looking for, in in a woodland. So that bit looks greener in summer doesn't it I think is the...
1: So they'll basically feed on well we think they're not choosy and they'll just feed on whatever's more abundant. So if you've got an outbreak of of caterpillars, caterpillars or something on a tree or actually soft like caterpillars they can quite often go for, they will just deplete that area. But it it can be quite localised so at a forest scale they don't tend to, they're not very good as, as pest control agents because they will deplete one tree but then another tree will be left and that will then um, succumb to all the caterpillars so it's very patchy um, where they have their effects
0: Do, do they shoot, choose certain species over others? of the trees do we know
1: they, well there are certain species they do prefer pine trees birch is quite often used and oak is the other the other main one but they will feed on quite a range of, of species actually they'll even go in spruce and, and other things pine is probably their their preferred host
0: I've got some footage and photos of them I think it must be in November so all, all the wasp workers are dying and it's just a trowel of wood ants dragging all these wasps dead wasps back to the nest it's a uh, that was quite cool to see. So, talking of the nests, are they the biggest nests we get in this country for, well, any social insect, I think, aren't they? Uh,
1: yes, yeah. So, uh, yeah, they don't get as big as termite nests um, no. elsewhere in the world. But yeah, in, in this country, definitely. Um, I mean, they can get up to, well, we we found one up in the north of Scotland, which was four metres across. <sighs> which is just quite extraordinary. And then they can get up to two metres in height. Generally, they're about a metre in diameter and a metre in height, so they're about that size. But then what you see above ground is is really just the tip of the iceberg. They'll be about two or three times that volume below ground, and they're constantly excavating the soil below ground and bringing that back up and putting it on, on the surface, and the nest grows that way so yeah extraordinary uh, feat of insect architecture
0: there's a lot of coppice woodland in yeah, uh, South Essex, Essex. so yeah. there's, there's a few, few sites that have got, got them, them. yeah I, I've managed to find the biggest nest I've seen which that was probably two two and a half metres across it wasn't that high though weirdly mm. um, it was only a probably about 50 centimetres high at most. Still still brilliant to see something that big, yeah, you know, yeah. built by insects. So how many workers can you have in a nest? How's, how big do they get? It, oh,
1: it varies. Um, your average nest will probably have tens of thousands. Um, the very biggest nests probably have up to a million workers. So quite a lot. And then you can get nests which are actually interlinked and form mm. one colony. And that can contain many, many millions of um, individuals. So they can get quite, quite substantial.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about those. Is it a satellite nest? Is that the correct term? I'm not sure. It's
1: a... there's, well, there's different, there's different nests, and mm. there's different nesting social structures, as it were. So you can get, so you'll have main the main nest. Then you might have seasonal nests, where the ants might use them over the summer, but then they'll return to the main nest over winter. And then you get, if you've got many nests which are interlinked and they're cooperating and and sharing resources, you might get some nests which are not foraging nests so wood ants will not forage from those nests they'll just use them as stopping off points to exchange material and things Mm. Um, but then so the social structure so you can have a colony which contains one nest or you can have a colony which contains multiple nests and they can be all interlinked and exchanging information and communicating And, and those colonies can actually get quite big and can form the extreme end what we call super colonies where right. you know our entire population is all cooperating and, and interacting with each other without any level of aggression
0: because oh, that, that was the um David Attenborough documentary was it Switzerland was it somewhere in the Alps wasn't it there's that yes. this whole mountainside almost seems to be working together and have we got anything like that in the UK
1: we don't in the UK there was a, an amazing example in Japan until quite recently where they thought there was about 45,000 nests which were all part of the same colony and something like a million queens and I don't know, many, many millions of of worker ants all um, in part of the same colony. But uh, unfortunately, there's been a lot of development which has Uh resulted in that colony being broken up. And yes, that's quite a sad story, really. Uh, We don't have anything like that here. We do have and um, what we call polygynous and polydomus mm. colonies here. So colonies, which are multiple nests with multiple queens, but they don't get anywhere near the scale that you get in the Alps or, or in Japan.
0: Yeah. I think there's some, because quite often you'll see a big nest and then a small nest, you know, less than 10 meters away. And, uh, but, um, and I've, I think I've seen both. I've seen. Um, I'll come to it in a minute. I will to talk about them, the colonies fighting. But um, so within a nest, is it always multiple queens in there, or is it sometimes one? Yeah, this is the bit I always found confusing. Reading around.
1: it is confusing, and it varies. It well, it varies between ah. species, and yeah. it varies between localities. So in this country, all our wood ants are um, multiple queen colonies. And the number of queens varies enormously. Um, and we probably don't actually know how much it varies. I was sent an amazing picture this spring that showed the the wood ants uh, basking in sun on the nest, warming up, sunbathing, as they do in the uh, early part of spring. And Normally, it's just the workers that do that. But in amongst all the workers was lots and lots of queens. And I counted, I zoomed in on the picture, and I counted more than 40 queens on Ooh. this one section of a nest. So presumably, there, there's... You know there's possibly up to hundreds of queens in some of our wood ant nests, but yes, it varies. And some of the species we have are actually one queen colonies elsewhere in Europe or in Asia, so it varies enorm- <laughs> enormously. And then they can, it's quite fluid sometimes between, and sometimes they will be um, one queen colonies, sometimes they will be multiple queens, and it, yeah. Again, it's complicated.
0: <laughs> I'm, uh, but I'm feeling much better now because I thought I was just being dumb, but it is so complicated. That's yeah. why I didn't really understand what was going on because uh, cause, cause you read a paper from, uh, you know, based in Europe or another country and you're like, but that's our species, but is it just different because it's Europe? And and I sort of not gave up, but just sort of went, right, I'm, I just don't understand this. <laughs> Sometimes you have to just uh, accept that, but that's good. Oh, brilliant. So, yeah. So in the start of spring, I remember I went to a place called... Um, the Wildwood Trust, which is a native animal um, wildlife park I think, down in Kent. And they've got lots of wood ants nests there. Um, it's it's, in, it's actually within the Bleen Wood Complex, which is a quite quite a good place for wood ants, actually. And the wood ants were just, you know, carrying bodies of the others back. And you could see them, at, I think you, I vaguely remember them actually fighting each other. So would that have been two colonies trying to decide where the territory lines are? Because it was early spring, so...
1: Um, Could it, have it, been that? It, it might have been if there were if they were all wood ants. It might have yeah. been. I mean, they do pick up their dead and take them back to yeah. the nest sometimes. But yeah, if they, if they've been, again, ag- aggression is something that varies <laughs> varies mm. between species and varies between localities, um, and it also varies in terms of what the the social structure of that particular colony is. They are very aggressive to other ants, but in terms of their own species, it 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 does vary it it depends on the species the colony size so they'll defend their nest definitely and they'll defend their their food sources but then it just depends how much cooperation and is is going on between nests. it depends on the size of the colony and how many nests are involved and and that can change so yeah again it's something it's quite fluid
0: the more you find out the more awesome they are so like all um, ants, when it uh, comes to sort of breeding time, you've got a lot of males and females or queens to be uh, in the nest and they take off, they're winged and they take off. I've, I've seen one twice. <laughs> I've seen a queen, a winged female. And they take off, they mate. It can vary what happens next, can't it? Because some go back to a colony and some will start... A new one, but oh, I'll let you explain it because I've, <laughs> I've, I've read stuff about them overtaking other ant species' nests and stuff like that as well. Yeah,
1: yes, they can do. Um, and they don't always take off on a nuptial flight. They sometimes mm. just emerge onto the surface of the nest and mate there. Mm. And then they can return into the nest and just stay there. And that's how you get this these multiple queen nests and colonies. So basically, once a queen's mated, she's got she's got a couple of different... Well, she's got three different options. She can just mate on the nest and then go back inside and, and become part of a stain or natal nest. She can mate on the surface and then take um, a group of workers with her and, f- and bud and form a separate nest close by. And that nest will remain connected to her original nest, For a period of time, might be forever or it might just be for a short time. Um, And the third option is is what you you said about um, taking over another ant's nest. So um, it's something called temporary social parasitism. So she'll find the nest of another ant species. It's never a wood ant. It's always one of the more submissive species. She'll kill the queen. Or if it doesn't have a queen, she'll take it over without too much aggression. And then she'll lay her eggs and the nest she's taken over, the ants she's taken over, will rear the first brood. And then once they die off, it then becomes... So you get a mixed colony to start with of the wood ants and then whatever species she's taken over. And then eventually it it evolves to become just a wood ant nest. So that's rarer, and it comes with more risk because obviously, when she's going into another ant nest, she's going to be attacked. So um, her chances of, of founding an nest that way are lower. But then the reward is better because she might be able to disperse a greater distance and reach a different habit, you know, somewhere further away from from her natal colony. So yeah, there's a few different options.
0: Wow, well, so when she takes over this nest, how does she trick the other workers? Is it the old pheromones again or
1: Yeah, it's it's chem it's chemicals and um yeah, she fools them into thinking that yeah. And it's the same with the slave maker that I mentioned earlier. It's it's because the chemistry of their cuticle is, is similar. They can they can be fooled into thinking that they're wood ants or they're being led by one of their own.
0: Oh wow. Well. They don't have it all their own way though, because you get other insects and ants living in their colonies, don't you? This, the um shining guest ant is the classic, isn't it?
1: Yes. So there's yeah, there's more than um a hundred different invertebrates that can be found in wood ants' nests, which is quite surprising given how aggressive um wood ants can be to other um species. But they've all evolved different ways of coping. So the shining guest ant is actually quite distasteful. So the wood ants might pick it up, but then it'll drop it again because it doesn't taste good. Other species can fool the wood ants into thinking they're, they're a wood ant by by smelling or being chemically similar. They can physically attack the wood ants or they can hide. There's a beetle which creates a case which it then retracts into when there's wood ants going about and then it'll emerge and... Uh, feed on the, the brood or, or whatever. And some things are just so small that they just evade capture by the wood ants. So there's a mite which eats the secretions that the wood ants put on their eggs. Um, it's a <laughs> well, very specialised diet, yes, yeah. but it's such a tiny little mite, so it gets it gets away with just hiding in nooks and cries in the wood ant nest and not being attacked by the wood ants.
0: Oh, amazing. Because, oh, is it a scarce seven-spot ladybird? One of the ladybirds is associator of my seem to remember and there's another beetle I can't remember what it's called that I've I actually did find once and it was near wood ant's nest. It wasn't until after I realised the association. Oh fantastic oh there's a s there mini ecosystems as well. Absolutely, fantastic. yep. Um we had a couple of questions uh from uh Carol Carl who actually sent them directly to you which is quite good. So she asks how long can they live And how old can the mounds be?
1: Yeah, so it's a good question. So brood development takes about six weeks for for any, regardless of whether they're queens, males, workers. Um, So from egg to adult takes about six weeks. And then the adults depends. So um, the males, um, whose only purpose really is mating uh, and reproduction, live about a few weeks as adults. The workers live few months, a couple of months maybe, um, except the ones that overwinter. Um, so the ones that are produced in the autumn, uh, late summer, autumn, will overwinter. So they can live you know, sort of 10 months. Um, and then the queens, again, it depends on the social structure. So if um, they are colonies with one queen, the queen tends to live longer. So she can live more than 20 years Wow. If she's the only queen in a colony, if there's multiple queens in a colony, and I don't know how this works, I don't know what the mechanism is, but she'll only live on average five years. So, it, yes, it varies, it varies enormously. And, um, and and certainly we've talked about the narrow-headed ant as well from a kick sect. It's been shown to live nearly 30 years, the queen. Oh. So that's just extraordinary for, for an insect, I think. The nests, um, we don't actually know how long they live. Certainly, we know they can live decades. And I think one nest has been recorded in the same place for more than 50 years. But possibly they live, you know, they can exist much longer than that. Possibly centuries. We don't know. Um, Certainly, I've seen trees growing out of the middle of, of wood ant mounds. And I'm sure... The mound came first and the tree grew through it because there's no way an wood ant would set its nest right in the middle of it around a tree. So um, a long, long time. And even their their foraging roots can exist for years and years on end. They can use the same trees for possibly decades as well. So it's amazing that they can live so long and stay in the same place for so long.
0: Yeah, I mean, connected to that uh, because a lot, like I mentioned before, a lot of the habitat here is coppice woodland, and they they need to bask in the sun, don't they? So seem to the nests seem to move year to year. So is that? is that a thing that happens or am I just seeing the um, satellite nests moving or it, did, did it, can the whole colony move or does that not really happen?
1: So they can move um, and it depends. In some places they were, they'll be more likely to stay put than, than mm. others. So in more ancient woodland we tend to mm. find that they will stay put um, because why move if you don't need to if you're you know, up uprooting such a huge nest you don't really want to put all that resource, resource and effort in if you don't need to. But in other places, and certainly in plantation, where where things are changing quickly, you will get the nests moving quite quickly. So there's quite a high turnover of young nests and small nests. Um, You'll see lots of changes with those. Bigger nests, once they reach a certain size, they're, they're more likely to stay put.
0: That makes sense. Yeah, because obviously in the coppice, um, if it's 20 year coppice, at some point it gets a lot more shady and they don't get the light anymore. And they do. T- I have noticed that, you know, you'll get, especially in the later coppice, you can actually find mounds of no activity on kind of thing in the middle of summer. So they've been abandoned and you'll find another nest towards the edge of it. It's. Uh,
1: they they do need. They do need a little bit of um sunlight when they're quite young, the nests mm-hmm. when they're they're small. But as they get older actually they need less and less sunlight yeah. because they've got the, the heat from the ants themselves, the metabolic heat from the ants, and then you've got all these microbes in the nest as well, which generate a certain amount of heat. Oh, so fabulous. um so we have some nests up here in Scotland which are completely covered by vegetation which get a little bit of just, it's deciduous vegetation so they get a little bit of sunlight in in the spring mm-hmm. which is just enough to give the ants a little bit of a, a warm up but then after that throughout the rest of the season they've got enough of their own heat to keep oh, that wow. nest at 25 30 degrees so it's it's quite incredible and there's there's a I've heard of a, a nest being in, inside a tree which <laughs> is I don't know how, which is uh, incredible. And also, there's a, re- a reference or a paper uh, about a colony that lived in an underground bunker.
0: Oh, I've seen. Yeah, there was a, there was a news story in that, wasn't it? They, yeah, they kept falling down and they never get out, but they survive. Yep. It's.
1: I know that's incredible.
0: Oh, that makes it because that's one thing when i read that story i wondered what because you read in the books Oh, they must have sun because the the, the classic trick isn't it the in certainly early in the year the, the workers heat themselves up and yeah. the mass of the bodies all those thousands of ants going into the nest actually acts like central heating it's yes um,
1: absolutely yeah they're like little mini radiators yeah. absorbing the sun and then going back inside to heat up the nest
0: is is that why they're dark colored We is that is that been proven or is that just oh. a theory
1: I, I don't I don't know. Um
0: I've always just assumed it, but I've not read it. Yeah.
1: There and well the colour the colour varies in different places mm. as well. And there has been some speculation that it relates to how much a habitat is disturbed. Mm. So they tend to be darker. Um I think this is the right way around. I probably got this yeah. wrong. Darker where the, the habitat's more disturbed, but we don't quite know if that's mm. um yeah, how that works.
0: I'm not the first person to spot it but I noticed it um, if I look at the common switching big tangent here switching to damselflies the common blue damselflies down here in Essex are a lot paler than the ones I saw in the kangorns uh-huh. and, and it also is further, it seems to be a rough pattern of further north you go, which makes sense well dragonflies are, I hate that they come solar powered but they are very dependent on the sun to be active aren't they so it would make sense for that group mm. but um, mm-hmm. oh that's interesting Yes, yeah, study for someone there <laughs> Yes, Um, and Carol asked another question, which was, are they being affected by increasing numbers of badgers? (laughs) Some areas down here, there's less badgers now, thanks to a certain government policy, but let's not go into that here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a good question. And I don't know if I can answer it. Certainly badgers are found on wood and nests. And we've actually, we've had some camera traps out on nests and we've actually captured badgers on the nest and they, they do root around. Quite often they're looking for some of those other insects that we talked about, that live inside the nest. They're quite often after the beetles in particular, but I presume they would eat ants as well. Um, or even they're just benefiting from the warmth of the nest because um, certainly other animals will sit um, in other parts of Europe. Bears will sit on, on the nest in winter to get the <laughs> warmth. And um, yeah, boar will, will will use them. I don't know whether they're, they're being affected by the increasing number of badgers Certainly there's some parts of Scotland where a high percentage of the nests are being damaged by mammals. I had a student a couple of years ago who who looked at one particular site in Scotland and found about 50% of the nests had some kind of damage from mammals. We think it was mainly boar, but they, they, there was definitely badgers and, uh, and other animals on that site as well, which could have been affecting them. But that's quite rare to see that amount of nests affected. Certainly young nests are more vulnerable and nests that have been moved or introduce translocated nests tend to be particularly vulnerable to to damage by badgers and have to be protected. So I'm not sure I can answer the question. It's possible. But yeah, maybe another study needed.
0: (laughs) Yeah, definitely a high percent. Well, we've got quite a good badger population in the in the pockets of wooden we have, so okay, that's where they're hanging on. I've noticed, yeah, actually pretty much all the sites are going to, especially in winter I seem to notice that there is yeah. a lot of damage. Oh, but maybe that's because it doesn't get repaired as well. It might be a bit of that going on.
1: Yeah, it's partly that. Maybe it's the warmth because they do still mm. retain some heat during the winter. And also you've mm. got the, the ants are all tightly packed together to keep mm. their warmth. So if you're digging into nests, you don't have to look hard. You've got this great big ball of ants, which is really easy to to
0: pick out and eat without too much no. so, so talking of winter I remember reading somewhere that they basically uh, keep producing workers up to a point in autumn where it hits a certain temperature or something and then they they will kill all the oh, and, and eat all the larvae to, so yes. just yeah so that is true <laughs> that's <pretty> efficient <laughs> typical ant's very efficient isn't it um, yes. yes oh sorry you didn't quite make it to you know your actual pupation gonna get eaten now <laughs> <laughs> Oh, fabulous. Uh, that's been absolutely fascinating. I've I've learned loads there. But uh, before we finish, we've got to talk about this colony translocation because we did chat with uh, James from back from the brink and he mentioned, because narrow-headed ants have got much smaller nests. They've started relocating them. Yeah. Um, and we joked about, oh, imagine if someone tried to relocate a southern wood ant nest and then I saw your talk. <laughs> <laughs> so people have relocated these huge nests in the park yes. and, and you, you looked at, how beneficial they were didn't you
1: yes yeah, so it's been going on for for more than 150 years surprisingly people have been moving wood ant nests and in the early days it was because they were thought to be really good for pest control um, yeah. and as we've said that's that's questionable and there's some extraordinary examples of of how far and how how many nests have been moved so there's um best example is uh, a colony of from of lugubrus formica Paraligubris from the alps was flown all the way to Quebec um, for the purposes of pest control. And that that colony survived, and it's now sort of a super colony containing about 100 nests, which are still going strong 30, 40 years on. Um, And then there's another reference to truckloads of ants being driven down from the Alps right the way down Italy as far as Sardinia in the 60s, again, for pest control. So it's just just crazy, really.
0: (laughs) Crikey. Is there, is there any evidence they're causing any problems for native species in Canada? Because it's a bit of a risky move. And now that would never happen. Because of yes, what, it would never
1: here. happen now. No, um, no. I do, in terms of rare species and things, I, I don't know if if no. that's really been looked at. They they will have had an effect of of some yeah. kind, yeah. Um,
0: but it's localized, so it should be. It'd be
1: localized. Yeah, they haven't yeah. spread beyond the original site, no. which is a good thing.
0: Yeah, that's what you want your non-natures to do. Nice curiosity, yeah. but not causing any threat, So Exactly. And there's yeah. different
1: ways you can move nests. So you, you can mm. dig up the entire nest, which is quite a lot of work. Um, mm. And the, the, the way we tend to do it is to shovel them into a Hessian sack or other um, container and um, just move them to the new site and let them out and then usually you have to supplementary feed them for a while because they're obviously mm. putting their energy into rebuilding their nests so they don't have this as much time and energy to to be foraging so you supplementary feed them for a bit and then and that's varying degrees of success we still don't know exactly how successful it is but in most cases they will survive for at least a short time if mm. if not Long term. Um, but then they quite often, we've still not quite got the right idea of where they want to nest because they quite often will then move their nest. Even if we think we've put them in the best place, they will still move their nest again or, or yeah. bud and and split into lots of different nests.
0: They always know better, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, what do you supplementary feed a wood ant's nest on?
1: Oh, all sorts of things. Um, a bit of protein, some eggs, or something sweet um, to mimic the the honeydew, sugary sugary things, or jams. Or you can buy because a lot of people rear ants now. You can buy sort of made up products that you can put out mm. for them. So yeah, bits of apple, anything.
0: So, did you say people keep wood ants?
1: Not wood ants, but other uh, ants.
0: Uh, I was just say, yeah, because I was um, I, I know a few people that kept uh, ants a little while ago, and I just thought how big a formicarium would you need for wood ants? <laughs> you, you need a like a big tank, wouldn't you? And I don't know. Has anyone ever successfully kept them in captivity? Do you know? Um,
1: they've certainly kept formic sector now headed down in yeah. ca- in captivity. Um oh, I don't think wood ants have been kept and
0: been outdoor enclosure probably isn't <laughs> which doesn't really count they
1: probably have they probably have for, for mm. well, some reason.
0: it's funny well Wild, wildwood had an enclosure that was empty and netted off and there was a wood ant colony and it did look like they had a but of course they were all crawling out of the cage so it was a it was just one of these sort of reptile um enclosures with a wall and a net over the top but um it did look like i think they did actually put a wood ant sign up so it looked like they had someone in the enclosure problem was they were walking all out of the woods and all the trees <laughs> that was quite funny for a time but um Oh, marvellous! Yeah. Well, I think I could probably talk to you all night, but I think <laughs> some of our listeners might um, uh, start to tire of, of. But I mean, they're just one of the most extraordinary animals in the UK. Never mind insects; one of the most yeah, brilliant animals. You exactly. uh, you could argue the colony is a as is a is like a super animal, isn't it? You know, little, yeah. all the, almost cliches now saying that, but it really is with wood ants. They just, I never tire of them. Bit that way. Um,
1: worth getting
0: out and have a look at. Yep. They, they, most sites that have them usually advertise the fact they've got them, don't they? So, you, and you can get them across the UK, can't you? As yes. you said. Yep, all the way so across they, the UK. There'll be somewhere near. Especially you have got a cop, a coppice woodland in south east seems to be the certainly the most popular thing. But it's like say pine woodland as well is the cause they and the, have I seen? I don't think I've seen one that's built the nest out of pine needles, which is the textbook one, isn't it? That's yeah. The, so
1: up here we up here in Scotland, yeah, they quite right. often use pine needles for the nest.
0: Yeah, if you read the textbooks, they're all made out of pine needles and have a J with its wings out, sprayed across the top at all times. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, marvellous. Oh, fantastic. Well, yeah, I could talk to you all night, as I said, Jenny, but uh, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast today. It's been absolutely fascinating. I mean, I do like wood ants. I've read lots of them over the years, but I've still learned a lot tonight. So um, thank you so much. And, uh, thank you. It good. That's it from us, guys. The next episode is episode 50, which is... It wasn't actually complete chaos, it should have been. There are it you'll find out what happens when nine podcast hosts <laughs> are in one place at one time. So um tune into the next episode as well and see you next time guys. Bye bye.
1: Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast service you use.
0: You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod or one word
1: or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast.
0: And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group.
1: If you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UK Wildlife Podcast.
0: And you can now support us through our Buy Me A Coffee account, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash UK Wildlife Pod, where you can give us a one off bit of support Or join our membership scheme. Head there to find out more. This episode was edited by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.